Good Tuesday afternoon, guys. My name is Jerry Miller, and this is the I Love Seville Show. Thank you kindly for joining us on a Tuesday afternoon. Our studio is located in downtown Charlottesville in the Macklin Building on Market Street. Today's program is presented by Scott Wagner of Scott Wagner Integrated Medicine. Dr. Wagner's team at Scott Wagner Integrated Medicine are literally changing people's lives, and I have seen it firsthand. We have worked alongside Dr. Wagner and his team for 10 plus years. And in those 10 years, I've seen Dr. Wagner take folks that come into his practice unable to walk, hunched over with the quality of life that was significantly lacking and completely revamp it. Revamp them physically, mentally, literally changing people's lives. A lot I want to cover on today's program. I encourage all the viewers and listeners that are watching our fair and fine talk show to take a look at the screen now. Tell your friends about what we're going to discuss and what we're going to talk about. I'll give you a snapshot before I dig into the first topic, which is the death and the passing of Lindsay Dorier, an Almore County public servant of tremendous proportions. We're going to pay a tribute to Mr. Dorier today and spotlight his lasting local legacy here in Almore County. We're also going to talk another shooting, multiple shots fired, um, around Grove Street last night, just off Grove Street. Was last night's shooting retaliation for the shooting over the weekend that led to the death of Eldridge Skeeter Smith? Skeeter was a father, a son, a Charlottesville High School graduate, a beast on the basketball court. Skeeter found dead on, over the weekend in an SUV with multiple shots, multiple bullets in his body. Within 48 hours of Skeeter's death, another significant shooting right around the location. We will put a map on screen here in about five or 10 minutes that showcases where the two shootings happen. And then we're going to ask a very significant, very real Perhaps an awkward question, but an honest one that pertains to Charlottesville, Virginia. Should the police in Seaville start implementing targeted patrols to help combat gun, gang, and drug violence? And if the police department utilizes targeted patrols to combat this kind of violence, how will the community respond? Will the community say this is the definition of racial profiling? Or will the community say this is good policing? That topic on today's show. I also want to discuss the MacArthur Center in Norfolk. Foreclosure um, process, the foreclosure proceedings have started. And this mall is for sale. They're looking to try to scrape as much money as possible um, at the MacArthur Center. A shopping center, when it launched, was the best of the best. I mean, you're talking one of the sexiest malls in the Commonwealth when the MacArthur Center launched. Today, just like Fashion Square Mall, it's empty. It's a ghost town, and it's lacking foot traffic. We'll talk about that on the show. 
I'll highlight some of the scuttlebutt I'm hearing through the negotiating grapevine about Stonefield and the movie theater. It could potentially stay open, guys. It very well could stay open. I'll let you know what I'm hearing. Um, I'm going to pass along an indoor pickleball center that's about to have its grand opening in Chesterfield County, Virginia. And we will highlight the plight of a stay-at-home parent and ask this question. Is a stay-at-home parent the most difficult job out there today? And I'm using the word parent, not mom or dad. Because so many dads are now staying at home as, as moms are the breadwinners. So much to cover on today's program, including Alex Erpian in about 15 or 20 minutes. Judah Wickhauer is the director of, their sh- of this show, and his contributions to the program should not be forgotten and undoubtedly should be highlighted. First, I want to begin with the, the death of Lindsay Dorier. I received an email last night from Mr. Dorier's daughter, Margaret Dorier. And she very kindly reached out and let me know that her father passed away on Monday. He was a public servant in Albemarle County for more than 35 years. He served four consecutive terms on the Albemarle County Board of Supervisors, representing the Scottsville District, two terms as Albemarle Commonwealth's attorney, and he was appointed as the director of the criminal justice system. Mr. Dorier dedicated his life, as his daughter wrote to me, to serving the people of the Commonwealth and of Albemarle County, and he did so with pride. What I'd like to personally do on today's show is pay tribute to this man, a pillar and a public servant that few of us have seen of this caliber in our area. I did some research to prepare for the show, and I stumbled across a website called the Scottsville Museum. You can find it online at thescottsvillemuseum.com. And while researching this tribute, I came across um, some boyhood and childhood stories of Mr. Dorier while he was growing up in Scottsville. One of them really caught my attention, and I'd like to relay that story to you. Mr. Lindsay, Dorier, Mr. Mr. Lindsay Gordon Dorier Jr. was born on August 27, 1943, in Scottsville, Virginia. His mother was Anne Shirley. And his father, Lindsay Gordon Dorier Sr. Mr. Dorier was raised in Scottsville. He attended public schools. He graduated from St. Christopher's school in Richmond, Virginia. Then he went to Trinity College. Mr. Dorier enlisted in the U.S. Army. He graduated from Infantry Officer Candidate School, and he served in Japan in military intelligence. After returning home, Mr. Dorier attended the University of Virginia Law School and pursued his career as a lawyer and elected official. He's a military veteran. He's a public servant. He's a father of two, and he's undoubtedly respected in this community. In researching this tribute, I came across a 2003 book titled Riverbanks to Mountaintops. In this book, Riverbanks to Mountaintops, Lindsey Gordon Dorier Jr. 
contributed an essay on his hijinks as a teenager growing up in Scottsville. While he was growing up in Scottsville, on one particular day, his parents were out of, away and out of town, and Mr. Dorier's friend, John Starr, was going to spend the evening at Lindsay's house. Mr. Dorier's friend, John Starr, was a bit of a mischievous lad. On the way home after work, John Starr suggested, Lindsay, let's get Mr. Brilliman, your neighbor, let's get his dogs riled up. And how we're going to rile up Mr. Brilliman's dogs, we're going to whistle and howl at them until they start barking uncontrollably, and then we're going to run away. So Mr. Dorier and John Starr head over to Mr. Brilliman's house in Scottsville, Mr. Brilliman was an eccentric character who often complained about children riling up his dogs. John Starr and Lindsay, Mr. Dorier, drive close to Mr. Brilliman's house. John Starr gets out of Mr. Dorier's car and starts whistling and howling and screaming and getting Mr. Brilliman's dogs riled up and jacked up and fired up. Well, this idea wasn't a great one. Mr. Brilliman was on them very quickly. He starts sprinting after John Starr. And according to the essay, John jumps into Mr. Dorier's vehicle and says, get the hell out of here right now. Brilliman is coming. So John Starr and Mr. Dorier, in a high-speed chase with Brilliman chasing closely, sprint to Mr. Dorier's house. They run inside the house, they turn off the lights, they pull the curtains, and they hide. Mr. Brilliman is furious. He's angry. He's pounding on the door of your door, saying, get out here, boys, and get out here right now. Well, eventually, the boys stood, stood hiding in the house, and Mr. Brilliman chose to, to leave and not pursue the pounding on the door of your door anymore. The boys thought they were free and clear. They thought they escaped, and they got away with one. Well, lo and behold, the next morning, an Albemarle County deputy sheriff named Jim Higginsby showed up with a warrant, and he charged them with disturbing the peace, a class one misdemeanor. Several weeks later, Mr. Dorier and John Starr, the two boys, showed up in court, juvenile court, before Judge Reddy. Lindsay's distressed parents testified that he was a good boy and he would never have gotten Mr. Brilliman's dogs riled up if they had been home. They asked the judge for empathy. The boys had an attorney and the attorney argued on their behalf that the dogs were disturbing the peace and not the boys. The judge, he showed empathy. He signed and swept the warrants into a desk drawer from which they never, ever reappeared again. Now, here's the irony. Lindsay Dorier Jr. would later point out that when he was a prosecuting attorney and when he practiced law, he was working in the same court when he was tried as a juvenile for disturbing the peace. He found irony in that. 
When you're paying tribute to a man of such accomplishments and accolades, you struggle to highlight which of the accomplishments and accolades should be spotlighted the most. What I chose to do with today's tribute was personalize, humanize, and localize Mr. Dorier. Childhood in Scottsville, his father owned the local Ford dealership in Scottsville, Bruce Dorier Motor Company. I try to highlight his military service and his commitment to Albemarle four straight terms on the Albemarle County Board of Supervisors for Mr. Dorier. This man was the definition of Albemarle County in public servant. Born August 27, 1943, Lindsey G. Dorier, Jr. Rest in power, sir. Our next headline today is one that's going to be a difficult dance for Judah Wickhauer, our director, and I to navigate. Why it's going to be a difficult dance to navigate is it involves topics that may be divisive, that may be that may elicit distrust in police, but it's a topic that we need to have nevertheless. Yesterday, another shooting took place in the city of Charlottesville. Parents walked out of their house in the Fifield neighborhood just off Grove Street to find bullets piercing vehicles up and down the road. I'd like for Judah Wickhauer to put the map on screen if you could. Over the weekend, Eldridge Skeeter Smith was murdered in an SUV. He was found with multiple bullets in his body off Grove Street. Grove Street is a hop, skip, and a jump away from the UVA hospital, right off Cherry Avenue. You have it on screen, sir? Thank you kindly. Everyone, please look at the screen. Please look at the screen now. I ask a fair question. Within 48 hours, you had someone or multiple people spray bullets all over a residential neighborhood. The first spray of ammunition resulted in the death of a 36-year-old father. The second spray of ammunition last night resulted in a terrified neighborhood. The second spray was... The name of the street, if you could? Uh, I don't know the exact uh, street, but they said uh, Grove, the Grove Patton area of uh, Fifeville. That's the second circle. And the, the map the is still on, on screen? Left. Yes. All right. Every, thank you, Judah. Everyone, please look at the screen. Last night's shooting took place on Patton Street. It was the second shooting in 48 hours on the Francis Fife Patton Grove Street area. I'm going to ask a couple of very fair questions, and we can go back on a one-shot. The first question I'm going to ask is this. Over the weekend, a 36-year-old father was murdered in his SUV. 
last night, a hop, skip, and a jump away from this murder, someone or multiple people sprayed bullets in a residential neighborhood. Are these two events connected? Is this retaliation for Eldridge Skeeter Smith's murder? Having this kind of ammunition sprayed in a residential neighborhood is terrifying. And asking if the events are connected is a fair question, a very fair one. I'm now going to go into a very difficult topic for all of us that are watching the show. Should the Charlottesville Police Department roll out targeted neighborhood patrols? Should the Charlottesville Police Department identify neighborhoods of high levels of violence and keep additional boots on the street and additional police cars circling the block. Before I take a deep dive on that topic, I understand that this is a question and this is topic matter that's gonna make folks uncomfortable. Some are gonna call this topic and this kind of targeted patrolling racial profiling. It's no secret that where these bullets were fired is in black neighborhood, a gentrifying neighborhood, a lower income neighborhood that is searching for an identity. Charlottesville City, as we all know, is extremely expensive. And currently, Fifeville and Grove Street and that Cherry Avenue corridor are gentrifying very quickly. You have folks tearing down houses and then building new construction at the $500,000, $600,000, and $700,000 clip. I'm gonna tell you, the housing is gonna get even more expensive every day that goes by. Still, Fifeville, Grove Street, Patton Street, this area, historically low income, historically African American. I'm gonna ask you, the viewer and listener, this question. Should the Charlottesville Police Department amplify patrols in this neighborhood? How will the neighborhood respond? How will the community respond? How will city council respond? How will newly minted police chief Michael Cotchis respond? How will Charlottesville Twitter and socialist Charlottesville respond? I like to weave Judah Wickhauer into the mix on a two-shot. J-Dubs, Lisa Costello says one of her favorite aspects of the show is when you say in the beginning, quiet on the set. Okay. Lisa, welcome to the program. Carol Thorpe, I'll get to your comment in a matter of moments. Viewers and listeners, leave your comments on air, please, in the comment section, and I'll read them on air. Look, gun violence is at an all-time high. In the last week alone, we've had two people shot next to Champion Brewing Company. We had a 36-year-old father murdered. And then last night, neighbors, homeowners, tenants, moms and dads, kids woke up to a spray of ammunition in the evening hours. I wonder if the Skeeter Smith murder and what happened last night are connected. I think it's a fair question because of the proximity. Hmm. If they are connected, the Skeeter Smith murder over the weekend and last night's spraying of bullets that very much makes me worried because that would allude to some kind of turf war, 
gang violence, retaliation. A logical question would be this. Should the Charlottesville Police Department, which is currently one-third vacant, should it utilize its efforts and its resources to target the Fifeville area where this kind of violence is happening? And my follow-up, and I understand I'm asking you a very difficult one, and it's a nuanced answer that you're going to have to offer. My follow-up is this. How will elected officials respond to targeted patrols? How will the black community respond to targeted patrols? How will the socialist community respond to targeted patrols? How will the media respond to targeted patrols? Is this racial profiling? Anywhere you want to go on that topic. I think it would definitely be helpful for the, for the police to start. And I think targeted patrols is a, uh, I think the, maybe it needs another name because it sounds like the kind of thing that, uh, that would call down cries of, uh, of um, racial profiling, racial profiling. Um, but really all it is, is I think an acknowledgement of where we're seeing problems happen. And I don't, it doesn't mean that they're targeting anyone. I think, uh, the reason for targeted patrols is that if uh, if the people that are shooting guns off in that area see a greater police presence, hopefully they're less likely to uh, to continue doing what they're doing there. Um, I certainly can't say how uh, how any particular group is going to respond, but. Um, I think we can all agree that something needs to be done and we can't just allow people to continue to shoot guns. Uh, some, somebody's got to stop them. Um, Yolanda Coles-Jones is watching. She joined us on the talk show, I'd say about 18 months ago, and she asked us to unpack the word targeted. Yeah. Um, so uh, by by my understanding of targeted patrols, it's that you that the patrols target areas where they know that uh, that crimes are occurring. For instance, if you had uh, if you had people breaking into shops in Stonefield every every week, you would want a targeted patrol of cops to be going around there and hopefully uh, making it less likely that people will attempt those kinds of things. So in this case, if we have people shooting guns in the Fifeville area, then a targeted patrol would hopefully make people... Uh, Less likely to commit violence. Yeah. All right, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to try to unpack this word. I'm going to try to unpack this, this type of policing. And I'm going to do this with logic, common sense and straightforwardness. You got a police department in Charlottesville that is currently 30% vacant. The Charlottesville police does not have its full capacity of human resources. The Charlottesville police is very transparently communicating with the community saying we cannot 
patrol and police all crime in Charlottesville right now because of the extreme level of vacancy within our department. That and literally is happening. And even if we did have a full department, would we want them all out all the time patrolling everywhere? It's like, uh, it's like having the snowplow ready in the middle of summer. A simile from you there, Judah Wickhauer. Um, here's what I would do first. I've, I also found something uh, uh, where it's being called directed patrol, and it gives some good, uh, some good definitions. Directed patrolling simply means to add visible patrols, whether in vehicles or on foot, when and where more crime is expected. For you instance, hotspots. And so this, just one more, this says uh, directed patrol is a proactive form of policing, unlike reactive patrol, where law enforcement responds to a crime as the result of a complaint. So it, in this case, we don't want complaints. We don't want the crime. So directed patrol is a proactive form of hopefully curbing what's going on. You know what the difference between targeted patrols directed patrols and racial profiling is? You know what all that is? Go ahead. Perception management. It's called branding. Yeah. That's you why got I said we should use it. Profiling, target patrols, directed patrols. I think target and directed are basically the same thing. Same. It's utilizing police resources in areas of violence. Yeah. This is the first thing I would do if I was um, an elected official. I would head to where the violence is going and transpiring, and I would knock on doors as an elected official. And I would talk to the residents where the violence is happening. The renters, the homeowners, the children, everybody and anybody. Mm -hmm. And I would listen to learn. I would ask folks in this neighborhood, what's going on? How do you feel right now? What can we do to solve this? And would you like an additional police presence, enhanced or amplified police presence around your neighborhood streets? And then I would tally the results of what I hear. And then I would bring these results back to a team of leaders, stakeholders, city employees, police officers, and we would make a decision as a collective. From my standpoint, when your police department is 30% vacant, on paper you know you do not have the human capital to truly police this 10.2 square mile city in full capacity. We're also seeing the violence in a lot of parts compartmentalized to certain portions of Charlottesville. I would bet when you go to Grove Street, when you go to Patton Street, and you ask the folks there, what would you like to see? I would bet you the majority would say, please give us more police officers around here because we're very scared. We're very scared right now. And we don't want to see any more gun violence and any more death. I would also bet that you're gonna have this reaction from some folks in the community. If you do targeted patrols, direct patrols, profiling patrols, whatever you wanna call it, 
whatever you want to call it, then what you're doing is you're doing systematic racism policing. You're creating a pipeline to prison. The same reason many folks wanted school resource officers out of hallways in public schools. They feared those SROs were targeting black and brown students. And when they targeted black and brown students, they created a, a pipeline to prison. That undoubtedly will be heard and mentioned. But this is the question I have for you, the viewer and listener, and it's a fair question. If, in fact, the majority of the neighborhood wants the targeted patrols, the direct patrols, the profiled patrols, and a small percentage of the neighborhood does not want them for fear of the pipeline-to-prison possibility, what should the police chief, Michael Kochis, do? What should the interim city manager, Michael Rogers, do? And what should the city councilors do? There's only four of them right now. There's not even five. Their job, from my standpoint, is to ensure safety of residents. I often talk about on this show, what is the role of public schools? And I've said it's three priorities, public schools. Get kids safely and on time to school. Maintain kids' safety while on school grounds. And get kids home and safe on time. Those are, I think, the three top priorities for schools. Fourth priority is going to be academic performance, quality of life. But those three priorities get kids safely to school and on time, maintain their safety while on school grounds, and lastly, the third priority, get kids home on time and safely. What are the priorities of elected officials, of police chiefs? From my standpoint, the number one priority for elected officials and police chiefs is to figure out a way to maintain the safety of residents, of taxpayers and citizens. Of course it's managing a budget. Of course it's managing growth. Of course it's trying to figure out affordable housing. Of course it's associated with quality of life. But isn't the first aspect of being a, a, a police chief or a policeman, or an elected official, is to build trust with the community through safety, that it's okay to live here, that you're going to be safe living in our jurisdiction? I certainly think so. If I'm Michael Conscious, and I'm the Charlottesville Police Department, I do this in a couple-prong attack. And the first prong is Michael Conscious and his sergeants and lieutenants should head to Patton, to Fifeville and to Grove Street and should listen to learn by knocking on doors and ask the community, the neighborhood, what you want to see from us. I'm willing to bet you a hundred bucks that a lot of the neighborhood where this massive gun violence has taken place, where it literally led to the death of Eldridge Skeeter Smith, a man who I've known since he was 15 years old. 15 I've known Skeeter Smith. I would bet you the majority of the people in the neighborhood would say, please pick up your police patrols around here and please help us find safety in our neighborhood. 
in 48-hour period of time, if you were parents, if you were renters, if you were homeowners, if you were single, if you were living with your significant other, and you saw someone murdered, and then 48 hours later, a spray of ammunition outside your door, you're going to be terrified. I certainly would be. I think Michael Kochis, the new police chief for Charlottesville, may have potentially underestimated, underestimated the job he has in front of him. We'll get to comments. Um, Yolanda, thank you for your question. The verb target in the context of policing, to be clear, what does this look like in your imagination? What actions are police taking in your mind? Thank you for that question. Um, I felt like I just gave a very, very good answer to that one. Um, a lot of, I knew, and I knew a lot of questions would come in on this. Lisa Costello, if high crime areas are also majority folks um, of color, um, some may feel increased police presence is profiling rather, rather than response to actual crime rate. It is also fair to take police patrols away from neighborhoods that have less crime? Is it also fair? That's a great question. I want to, why don't we yeah. unpack that question? Lisa Costello straight up asks us this question. Is it fair to take patrols away from neighborhoods and area that have less or no crime and allocate them to neighborhoods that have more crime? I would say so. I would say so, yes. I would absolutely say so. Why would we, why would we want police wasting their time patrolling areas that that have no, uh, have no issues. Devil's advocate for the sake of a talk show. By removing the patrols in the neighborhoods that have little to no crime, could that potentially breed more crime for those neighborhoods? You mean, would the, would the crime move from wherever they're currently patrolling for it because they've had, the, they've had crimes being committed there in the past. If you take away police officers from one neighborhood and you take them to another neighborhood, will that create more crime in the first neighborhood? I would hope that in uh, the pursuit of their, of their job, they would hopefully be finding these people. Uh, the patrols aren't just to uh, prevent crime. It's also to find uh, who's committing it. Hopefully, somewhere in all of this, they're finding and uh, bringing in the elements of our city that are shooting guns around. And eventually, the uh, directed patrols could ease as the, uh, as the crime eases in those areas. Carol Thorpe says, I would recommend using the word focus patrol. The word targeted patrol is counterproductive and understandably incendiary. It is absolutely reasonable for police to go to where crime is happening. Yeah. How is the community going to respond to the police department utilizing focus patrols, direct patrols, targeted patrols, profiled patrols? This is branding. This is wordsmithing. Focus patrol and direct patrol in a, ma- in a more neutral camp than targeted patrol. Yeah. 
profiled policing in, in an absolutely non-neutral camp, certainly placed in a bucket that's going to raise um, the ire or the anger of many in the community. This is legitimately wordsmithing and branding here. The reality is a profiled patrol, a targeted patrol, a direct patrol, um, a focused patrol, however you want to wordsmith it, is taking police and allocating the police resources to neighborhoods that are crime-ridden at greater frequencies than other neighborhoods. That's the definition of it. Yeah. Well, what I would like to see is uh, conscious go to those neighborhoods. And knock like, on doors and listen like, to learn. Like you said, knock on doors and listen to people, but also explain to them that uh, the directed patrols are not out to... Uh, they're not out to harass the residents. They're there to, uh, to keep them safe. And hopefully to, uh, at, on one hand, scare off the crime that's been occurring there, and on the other hand, hopefully catch the people that have been, that have been doing it. It seems straightforward to me. If I knew, somebody, if I knew people were shooting guns in, in my neighborhood, I would, uh, uh, I would be glad to know that uh, the police were aware of it and were taking steps to put an end to it. Exactly right. I feel the same way. If gun violence was happening in my neighborhood, I'd want the police there. 100%. And I don't think that statement is a statement that can be twisted or manipulated. If there's violence in my neighborhood, I want the police to figure it out and solve it. That's what we're saying. Yeah. Now, I can assure you, if conscious in the next couple weeks says, we're going to start rolling out some focused or targeted patrols, some direct patrols, some profile patrols, it's all branding. It's all wordsmithing. If Katja says he's going to do that, I can assure you some of the response for people in this community is going to be, this is the pipeline to prison. This is systematic racism. He's going to have to navigate that dance, that nuanced dance very well. Definitely. I got a follow-up question for you. If the two events, and put the map back on screen if you could. Put it on screen for about 10 seconds and then come back to us on a two-shot. If these two events, I mean, look how close they are in proximity. If these two events, they, I, I, I understand it's a roundabout. We don't have to, it's a roundabout, yeah. Don't marginalize the uh, narrative. Um, if, if these two events are connected, and it is in fact retaliation for what happened over the weekend, what's your response to that? Explain what you mean by retaliation. If what happened last night was a retaliated Somebody's event to Skeeter Smith's murder, how do you respond to that? How does that make you feel? Are you more concerned if it's retaliation, or would you be more concerned if they were two separate events? Um, well, I think there could be a, a third possibility in which it's the same person shooting guns. We don't necessarily know if, uh, if 
if Eldridge was uh, was personally targeted, or if he just, as we as we heard about the uh, the Patton Grove uh, shootings, there were cars shot up. We're we're, we're we're men of common sense. We're men of common sense. The likelihood of Mr. Eldridge Skeeter Smith's murder being a non-targeted murder is unlikely. You're basically saying he's hanging out in his SUV and just happens to get hit randomly by gunfire and is murdered that way. That's the third possibility you're saying. Yeah. I think that's extremely unlikely. I think the much more likely scenario, because there were multiple bullets in his body... The much more likely scenario, as this was a murder of intent. Fair enough. So you think he was involved in the, the gangs or the drugs? I, the I'm gang. not going to jump to that conclusion. I think that Eldridge Skeeter Smith's murder was a murder of intent. I will not jump to the conclusion of gang association. I'm just going to say it's a murder of intent because multiple bullets were found in his body and multiple bullets were found in his SUV. This was not random. Okay. I also, because we're people of common sense, when these two events are so close in proximity geographically, a fair question to ask is, are they tied, associated, or linked in some capacity? Further justifying the statement I just made is the short window between the two. We're talking 48 hours here between these two. For us to believe that in a 48-hour window, within a quarter of a mile, less than half of a mile, in a 48-hour window, there was multiple shooting, spraying of ammunition and bullets? We're common sense people, right? It's common sense to link these in some capacity until we hear otherwise from the police. So my response to you is this. If these two events are in fact linked, does that make you more nervous, more trepid, more frightened and scared than if these two events had nothing to do with each other? Mm. I don't know. From a logic standpoint, I think that uh, if they are connected, it might make it easier for the cops to find and apprehend the people. How about you viewers and listeners? As I, was, as I said on a previous show, I think uh, if they're just random events, it becomes a lot harder to figure out who did That was them a fair point you made on the previous show. Stop them. If they were just ran- random events, it would become more difficult to figure out what's behind all these. Yeah, you don't know if it's going to pop up in the same neighborhood or a completely unrelated neighborhood. If, it, uh, if they are connected, then maybe it's connected to somebody in those neighborhoods. Uh, there's just... Now there's, you know, now there's a, a trail or a, a breadcrumbs for, for the cops to, to follow and hopefully solve this and, and bring some people to justice. Very fair point. Very good point right there. I'll take this position. While I agree that if these two shootings are linked in some capacity, the shootings will become potentially easier to solve from a policing standpoint, I agree with that. But from a standpoint of being a father of two and a husband to, to, to the best person out there, my wife, I become more scared 
and frighten because the events are linked. Retaliation and linked gun violence is the foundation of gang violence. That's fair. Foundation of it. Random shootings, while still extremely concerning, yeah. that are not linked in any capacity, can be checkmarked in the one-time event category, which would create a sense of, I don't have to worry about this as much. Yeah, and you're saying that, uh, that if it is some kind of retaliation, that then that could lead to a retaliation from the other side. Exactly. Which it's a never-ending chain of, uh, of people going after each other. Bingo. At a, at, a time, at a time when the police department doesn't have the resources to combat it. That's exactly my point. I think Michael Kochis, the police chief, um, has a very dubious task in front of him. And I think he underestimated what he has in front of him, the challenge he has in front of him. Maybe. I think Michael Kochis, since he's taken this job, since he's taken this job, he had Doc Holliday and White Earp and the OK Corral in downtown Belmont. He had a murder on Grove Street, a middle schooler, Almorrow County public school middle schooler, shot outside Champion Brewery. A few hours later, a female shot a block and a half away. Yeah. Then he had Skeeter's murder over the weekend, and now the spraying of ammunition right yeah. around the corner. I think he underestimated. And Michael Kochis, um, I've been in touch with some of your colleagues here. Would love to get you on the show to introduce you to the community. It would be undoubtedly a fair interview. Um, we would spotlight you, sir. We would humanize you, localize you, personalize you. We'd ask you questions about this, but it would not be shock jock journalism. It would just be fair questions that the community is wondering. We would happily stream the interview, uh, Police Chief Conscious, to the Charlottesville Police Department Facebook page, where it could be archived as an introduct introductory of you to the community. I gotta be frank, very few in the community watched your press conference on legacy media. Just because folks aren't checking out media that way anymore. How they're absorbing their media now, Police Chief Conscious, is through what I'm doing right now. Let's introduce yourself, introduce you to the community, sir. Guys, it's a, it's a frightening time right now. It is a frightening time right now. Tracy Lee Shiflett. The bottom line is this. The police are understaffed, and we have too many people who have guns. I have to be honest. I am scared, and we cannot live in fear, but things are out of hand, and I am scared. My wife said to me last night, she has three friends visiting her at the end of the month mm -hmm. to celebrate the birth of our youngest son. She said, I'm not sure the four of us. First she said, you're going to be watching the boys when my girls are in town. I said, of course I am. Uh, and I said, I'm not sure the four of us are going to go downtown. We're not going to go there. Yeah. That's literally what she said. 
It should be very concerning for the community when four females in their mid-30s will not go downtown for fear of safety issues. Yeah, definitely. Because that's, that's the demographic you want. Because when females come downtown, guys follow. Uh, well, yeah, especially concerning for the downtown businesses. She literally how many, said that. how many other people are, are saying or thinking the same thing? I was playing um, squash yesterday with a Darden first year. He's pursuing his MBA. He dropped his car off at Settle Tire during the middle of the day. And then he walked from Settle Tire to the downtown mall. And he said he was harassed beyond levels he had ever experienced by panhandlers on the downtown mall to the point where they were cussing and screaming at him. Wow. And this guy is maybe six foot, six foot one, 200 pounds and 28 years old. I said, do you feel unsafe? He said, absolutely. I said, yeah. what time of day was this? He goes, just after lunchtime. I want you to think about that. You got yeah. a six foot one, 27, 28 year old. That's about 200 pounds. That is chiseled and prime physique getting harassed to the point of getting cussed out by multiple panhandlers. And I asked him, did you feel safe? He said, no, just after lunchtime on a Monday afternoon. Yeah. Man, it's 126 here. We got to get Alex Erpi in the mix here. We got so many topics that we have to cover. Um, All right, for the sake of time, I'm going to segue some of these topics to tomorrow's show. I want to offer a little scuttlebutt that I'm hearing through the commercial real estate pipeline that I'm actively involved in. The shops of Stonefield are not dead. Or the, uh, the movie theater at the shops of Stonefield is not dead yet. Nice. The Regal movie theater is not dead yet. Um, I can't speak from a identifying the people involved in the negotiation standpoint, I can only utilize anonymity and sources. But if you watch this program, you realize the sources we reference on this show are 99.9% of the time correct. Currently, the shops of Stonefield and its ownership group are negotiating with the parent company of Regal Movie Theater about renegotiating terms of a lease to see if it can keep the movie theater in play at the shops of Stonefield. That's good news for that shopping center. Because if that movie theater goes away, you got to start wondering about the future of the shops in totality. And that would have been a perfect segue to the MacArthur Center in the 757. At one time, one of the sexiest malls in the Commonwealth, now heading to foreclosure. I'll relay those details to you on tomorrow's show along with an indoor pickleball center coming to Chester, Chesterfield County. And then I will also discuss the plight of a stay-at-home parent. You know the average stay-at-home parent works 98 hours a week? Damn. 98 hours a week for the average stay-at-home parent. Those topics tomorrow. Let's get Alex Erpe in the mix. And Anonymous, the I Love Seville versions, uh, I Love Seville Network versions of Deep Throat. I got your email, sir. Um on um, assessment change breakdowns with your data. And I see the app that you sent me as well. We will spotlight both on tomorrow's program. Now what I'd like to do, 
Um, you let me know when you're ready for that, Jay. That was very nicely done there, Juno. Live uh, programming, it's literally nice adopting, adopting nice on the touch. fly. That's very nice. That's very good. Are we, on a, are we on a triple there? Just about. Okay, we're almost on a triple. Triple's a three-shot. Triple's a shop talk for broadcasting and audiovisual. Uh, we're, on a, we're on a triple now. Um, Alex Serpy's in the mix, the CEO of Emergent Financial Services, the co-star of Today E Manana, which airs Thursdays at 10.15 a.m. right here on this network. We're having a real conversation here. Yeah, absolutely. I've been listening uh, to it. Where do you want to begin? It's first good afternoon. First good afternoon. Happy New Year. Thank you. It's been uh, Same to first, you. first time back. To the this guy's engaged. Yep. He's got a fiance. She's yep. a doctor. She has yep. a fantastic surname. Yep, she does. Miller. <laughs> Dr. Miller. Um, he's got a wedding on the near horizon. When you see Alex Zerpi yep. around town, congratulate him on landing a beautiful doctor for a better half. Congratulations. Yep. I'm sure That's Mrs. Zerpi sure. is very happy. Where do you want to begin on this topic matter? It is, it is, it's a tough one. It's a tough one. I have to say, first, how glad I am that Riedel is not, that there's a possibility. I've been trying to, my, my fiance and I have been kind of depressed about that for the last two weeks since we saw the news on that, that it might be going, because that's our favorite movie that's theater. That's your favorite movie of, theater? Yeah, we're kind of old-fashioned and liking just our sloping seats, our nice big screens, don't, no bother, not bothered by anything. Are so you talking forth. about like the wait staff taking your order? Yeah, that sitting? kind of stuff. We just yeah. want to like watch the movie and we don't even get that many popcorn or anything. So, so we like Riedel, so I'm hoping that... Uh, that works out because that would be not, and especially like you said, that it's a centerpiece of that mall. So it's very difficult to imagine. 65,000 square feet. It's, it's huge. And really the two wings of it, the shops along those wings, it's a lot harder without that. All right, maybe the other ones, you know, down the way, Trader Joe's might be pulling some people there. But, but that side kind of needs uh, a big movie theater in the middle there. They're renegotiating terms. If you're Stonefield, from my standpoint, you're going to have to move on some terms. And I don't want to utilize the word cave, but you're going to have to give a lot Mm -hmm. to keep this company in play, especially with the future of movies. A lot of people just want to stay home on their Lazy Boy and and drink their wine, their cocktails, and their beer while watching a 70-inch flat screen TV on Mm -hmm. surround sound without paying anything yeah, and getting any movie they want. So it's very challenging times for the movie theater. What do you um, what do you make of what's happening with the violence? It's 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 tough. I mean, we were talking about it the other day, my family and I, just with regards to downtown. That you got to make sure you kind of avoid the cycle of. I you know I don't want to come downtown because I think uh, it might be violent. Therefore, if I don't come downtown, there's less people downtown. If there's less people downtown, then the percentage of actual people on the mall versus panhandlers decreases so even less people want to come in other words like the why is the downtown mall extremely busy during the summer because there's already a lot of people there so you and i with families sit there and say well i don't mind going on a friday afternoon in the summer when i know there's going to be a lot of people there i do mind going on a Friday afternoon in the winter, if I don't think there's going to be a lot of people there, because I don't want to be accosted by someone looking looking for money, and and particularly if it's going to be in an aggressive manner, like like the person you were citing just said. So I think that's you. That's kind of those cycles that you really have to figure out a way to put a stop to, because otherwise you end up. That's how you end up with ghost towns, because no one goes, because no one else is going. 
if that makes sense. It's that kind of cycle that you have to avoid. And it's just it's it's hard to know what the what the magic solution is, given that the police department is is clearly understaffed. But it just and it's it's strange. Partly, I think we've talked about this before that uh, a lot of the officers don't even can't even afford to live nearby, so you really don't get a lot of night patrols there. Because I remember, like, you, you go down downtown Mulder in the day, sometimes you'll see the officer on the, uh, the Sedway. Yeah, absolutely. By. I I've see him ne- often. I've never seen him at night. And maybe that's something they need to look into, but again, it's a harder ask if you're understaffed to then have people come in at night and do that. But it, it's, you need to do something because, like you said, perception becomes reality at some point. And if the perception is that downtown is not safe and there are no families there, then families won't go. And it just continues to feed itself. I like it. Alex Herpes, is the CEO of Emergent Financial Services. Tough topic. Here you go. No. Targeted patrols, direct patrols, profile mm-hmm. patrols. Um, what was the word Carol used that I think was very good? Um, focus patrols. Yeah, basically what New York City has been trying to figure out for the last 20 years, whether or not and how to do that. I, I think it, if you do it, it needs to be combined, I think, with community outreach there. In other words, you have to do it in such a way to say, he, we're going to help you to get to know the officers that we intend to send there for your safety. Because I think if you do that, if the officers then know the people that live there, the people that live there know the officers, and you can get a good community trust, if you can build trust there, I think it makes the patrols, focus patrols in that area much more efficient. Because then you know, you don't have a sense of fear that people, and this is, I mean, this goes back, I mean, Latino communities used to have it where, you know, you don't talk to the police. The Sicilian communities way back in the 40s used to have it, oh, no, you don't talk to police. Right, Because when there's no trust, it's difficult to put focus patrols because then the implication is, well, what do you think of me as a community? I'm not going to talk to you or help you. If you do take the steps to build trust and say, this is why we're here, what do you think, what would, you, what would be helpful for you, I think that can go a long way to saying, all right, we, we know who is going to be doing the focus patrols, and not no in the sense of like Charlottesville Police Department, like no is in the sense of Officer Jimmy, Officer Bob, that, that kind of thing, to get to know them. And I think that can go a long way towards making that more successful. Because like you said, you have to, as someone, right, whose you know, family, one side of the family came out of Brooklyn and the other one came out of Queens, right, you'd... You don't want people in low-income communities to suffer because of violence because we're afraid of perception. You know what I mean? Now, you can't sit there and say, well, the police department doesn't want to look bad, so we'll just have to good luck, good luck with the violence because we don't want anybody to be mad at us. You have to take the steps to do something about it, but do it in a way that builds trust rather than breaks trust. So I think that's, maybe that's something they should look into, see, maybe see what other cities have done to kind of build good relations between the community and the officers are about to send there. I'm getting multiple messages from the Charlottesville Police Department as we speak. They are watching the show literally right now. The Charlottesville Police Department is watching the show literally right now. This message sent to me directly. Jerry, Chief Cotchis, and his officers will be visiting neighborhoods and the community for walk and talks all week long, including starting on Thursday at 3.30 p.m. 
we will be doing the walk and talks and knocking on doors like you have identified. The police watching the show as we speak literally right now. I think that is the path right there Mm -hmm. to good policing. Because if the police goes to the neighborhood and says, what should we do to solve these problems? And if the neighborhood answers or votes or says we should be doing this, then the police can say, hey, we listened to learn, and this is what the neighborhood wanted from us. We're not shooting, bad pun, we're, I was going to say shooting from the hip. We're not just randomly doing a police strategy. Mm-hmm. We're asking the people themselves what to do. Mm-hmm. So the police department reaches out to me directly and says, we're going to be doing this starting on Thursday at 3.30 p.m. What do you make of that? Both that, of you boys. Those are the first steps that you need to do. Because, again, you have to do it with – when you do things with people – and this goes for everybody, right, not just low-income communities. When you do things with people, people trust you. When you come in and say, this is what I'm doing for you, take it, you know, like it or too bad if you don't like it, then people – we're human beings, right? We tend to bristle. We like, oh, well, what do you mean you're going to do this without asking me if you want to do this? So I think – when you do it in a way that says we want to work with you on this and we want to serve your needs, I think that goes a long way. What do you think, Judah? Well said. I agree completely. Uh, I, it uh, it fosters a sense of uh, a sense of community, and uh, by by the police knowing the uh, knowing the people in the neighborhood and the people in the neighborhood knowing the police, uh, it's not just. Uh, I think it uh, curtails some of the fear that some people may feel with, uh, with cops coming into their neighborhood and possibly not knowing who they are. Um, mm-hmm. I, could, I can completely understand someone being worried that, uh, you know, I'm just coming home, I step out of my car, here comes a cop, they don't know me, and mm-hmm. all of a sudden, uh, you know, we've got, uh, we've got problems, issues. A lot of the reasons why, uh, why some people... Uh, decry the police and are worried about this type of thing turning into, uh, you know, like a, a pipeline to to jail, where the cops are randomly accosting uh, you or your neighbors because they don't know you. Mm-hmm. Uh, texting with police while hosting the program and reading comments as we speak. This from Twitter and direct message. Um, this is from anonymous. Um, he says, I live most of my life in New York City. Stop and frisk was a highly effective, reduce, highly effective measure to reduce gun violence. Yeah. The risk of getting nicked meant sketchy characters would not risk walking around illegally armed. Right. That reduced gun conflict in New York City. On the other hand, this stop and frisk policy meant people in targeted neighborhoods, yep. especially young men, got hassled a lot. Mm-hmm. And yep. he says, a lot in all caps. Yep. He says, it's a very hard trade-off, as you guys are saying. It seems to me that the people who should decide on that trade-off are the residents of the neighborhoods in question, which is what we're saying. Mm-hmm. He also says, it is clear to him who should not be making these decisions. And that he says, socialist Charlottesville... Uh, Jeff Fogel, the attorney, and various virtue signaling purveyors of anti-police copy pasta. Um, we can. Li- 
I appreciate your <laughs> comment right there, Anonymous. It was good yeah. seeing you um, yesterday. Bill McChesney says, snitches get stitches. I'm not sure how that relates to what we're talking about. Well, he's saying if the police knock on your door and you start offering perspective on what's happening and insisting that police come to your neighborhood, well, snitches get stitches. Well, that's yeah. That's I mean, that's, that's the that's old the point that's you New made. York in a nutshell. That's the old that's Sicilian Latino point that you were making. Yeah, that's, right. Exactly. But when you come here, and there is particularly if it's indeed our concern, right? Obviously, the concern is that this is organized in some way that you're dealing with dangerous violence. Then you you do have to. I mean, you can understand why the people in that neighborhood would be worried about that. But it's also not the same thing as uh, as someone dropping a dime on you know Tommy. Tommy two two tone, and uh, and somebody somebody getting that information back to Tommy, so that uh, you know so that this guy is in trouble. Uh, it's not like I I don't know I I could be completely wrong, but I don't see. Uh, You're basically saying asking for the police to patrol your neighborhood is definitely than telling the police who committed a crime. That's yeah. what you're saying. Yeah, mm. it's not like they saw. It's not like they saw Johnny at the at the police station uh, giving information. Um, That's it's, true. And you, you would hope we're not there yet. I hope in 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 that neighborhood. In other words, that there's a uh, pervade culture of fear because yeah. of a massive gang or something. You would hope that that's not that what we're dealing with now is a community trust working with police rather than community wants to work with police but literally cannot because the whole area is being run by a gang. I would, I would, I would hope that's not what we're dealing with at this point. Yeah. Um, the very intriguing aspect of this, if you could put the map back on screen, is this literally, and give, give us the thumbs up when it's back on, this literally is in the, it's, it's on screen, this literally is in the shadows of UVA Hospital. Like this is, I could hit a, was it two blocks? Three not, blocks? Not, not even. even that. It's right across the street from Roosevelt Brown Boulevard. Yeah. So your fiance works here. I know. Your sister in law works here. Right? Yep. That your fiance and your sister in law, do they get off at, at night from time to time? They, they do, right? Oh, it's, it's a worry. They, they work a half a block away from this. What, have you heard through the grapevine any of the commentary about this from. From, from the. Not no, not that I not that I'm aware of, not that I'm aware. Of. I mean, I, I don't think they've, I've never they've never said that they've heard violence of any kind. Usually, it's a kind of like a straight walk from the hospital to the to the car the parking garage. But of course, we as their spouses and future spouses worry, worry. as you should because you should. love them. Um, the other interesting aspect of this is this neighborhood where this is happening. Ten years from now, and it might not even be ten years. Will not even identify or resemble what the neighborhood is today. And what I mean by that is the word gentrification. These are coveted properties now. Mm-hmm. King Street, Grove Street, Patton, they're coveted. In because 10 years, get, it's a shocker if UVA doesn't own the whole thing. Or, or, or if it's not that UVA owns the whole thing, if it's not just the neighborhood of, of, of residents and fellows mm-hmm. and nurses and, and admins and doctors and hospital managers because they can skip to work. I wouldn't even. I don't think they could even afford it. Because you're saying it's that pricey. Yeah, I, I don't think you, ten years from now you'll see nurses or residents, maybe a couple doctors, be able to afford to actually live there. 
Oh. I mean, it's a phenomenal location. Exactly. That's the point. That's, that's the why. point. There's no way. There's no way nurses will afford to live a block, two blocks from the hospital. He's prob- He's right. He's actually right. Um, it it will gentrify into a neighborhood of wealthy science, technology, engineering, math, finance professionals. Yeah. Like every again, other neighborhood. It, again, if it's not a hospital extension, if it's not another wing. If it's not another wing of UVA Hospital. Very good point right there. Gentlemen, um, where do we go from here? And then I want to hear about today, Minyana. I think we've talked about, and it looks like CPD is, is kind of thinking of Texting those first now. steps. They're thinking of those first steps, and you, just, you have to take it one step at a time because that's, that's all you can do at this point. You, you can't, you have to, and again, they're doing the right first step. You've got to manage perception first because you cannot go down the, the death spiral of anyone, like people just leaving the area so the only people that are left are the ones causing trouble. Judah. Yeah. It's definitely fair. Um, I, I look forward to finding out how uh, how Cotchis handles this. I, I think he does have a uh, he does have quite a job ahead of him. But uh, um, I I don't think he was in I don't think he was entirely in the dark about uh, the problems in Charlottesville when he came on, and so I'm hopeful that uh, he's got a, a plan in place and in the next. Uh, the next few days and weeks, we'll see him implement that plan, and uh, hopefully, um, hopefully, we'll have good news soon. Police Chief Cautious, very much, uh, very much encourage you, sir, to come on the talk show. The walk and talks that you're doing from neighborhood to neighborhood are very impactful. Doing a talk show like this will take it to a completely different level of human connection, sir. Um, Carol Thorpe has a tribute to Lindsay Dorier. She says, God bless Lindsay Dorier. Jerry, we often speak on this show about the power of bipartisan representation and leadership. In 2011, during my chairmanship of the Jefferson Area Tea Party, we championed two significant policy changes to the Admiral County Board of Supervisors, which then had an even split of Republicans, Ken Boyd, Roddy Thomas, and Dwayne Snow, and Democrats, Lindsay Dorier, Ann Malik, and Dennis Rooker. Despite massive pressure from his liberal co-counselors and an overwhelmingly hostile community climate created by not one but two town halls, Lindsay bravely voted his conscience to cross the political aisle and vote in favor of our policy changes. He was a politically he was politically outcasted for doing so, but he absorbed the political heat and stood firm even years later, saying it was the right thing to do on the merits, which was how every decision ought to be made by elected officials. In my experience, Lindsay was a man of integrity and fairness, how we need more like him. We need more like him, those who put policy and fairness ahead of personal agenda. Carol Thorpe, that's a fantastic Mm -hmm. comment. The queen of Jack Jewett. Today, Imanyana, Alex Serpy. It's going to be fun on Thursday. Uh, we just celebrated our 100th show last week. And uh, so for 101, we're having back on uh, David McCormick. He's with the Early Music Access Project, some new um, concerts and, uh, and uh, opportunities to learn about music in the area and early music in America that are, that are coming your way that people can definitely check out. So that's going to be a lot. I'm looking forward to that tremendously. He's the co-host of Today, Imanyana, Alex Serpy. Ladies, he's off the market. Dr. Miller has claimed him. The Antonio Banderas, the finance CEO of a firm led by his family. 
If you need financial guidance, Emergent Financial Services, Alex Erpe, Michael Erpe, Xavier Erpe, and you, Nicholas. I love you, Nicholas, the CMO, Nicholas Erpe. Judah Wickhauer is the director. This is the I Love Seville show where we have conversations that are about as real and as raw as it gets for the sake of the betterment of this community. Thank you kindly for joining us. So long, everybody. Um, 